Good morning. I would invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 17 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, there is likely a blue Bible located underneath the seat around you, maybe blue or black, and you're free to use that Bible. In that Bible, you can turn to page 986, and that'll bring you to the right place. I've titled this um, message, as we're just simply making our way through the letter to the Thessalonians, titled this message, Involuntary Separation. Involuntary Separation. So, as an example, one example of that, a voluntary separation, when we're thinking about employment, a voluntary separation occurs when an employee freely chooses uh, to resign or retire from their company that they work for. That would be a voluntary separation. Involuntary separation occurs when the employee doesn't want to leave but is made to leave by being fired or laid off um, by the company. So you get the idea of the two types of separation. We're going to be talking about an involuntary separation today. In our text today, Paul goes out of his way to make it very clear to his Christian readers in Thessalonica that being separated from them, as he was, was not his desire, nor the desire of his co-workers that were ministering to those in Thessalonica. Rather, it was an involuntary separation. But why does he take time to make that point? Why does he want them to know that? Well, and this is important for us to understand, but it is thought that the unbelieving Jews there in Thessalonica, those who refused to accept Jesus for who he really was, the Christ, it is thought that they were those, and the very same ones who, by the way, were responsible for Paul and his missionary team having to leave Thessalonica in the first place, we can read about that in Acts 17, 1 through 10, but that those unbelieving Jews had attempted to convince then, after Paul and his team had left, convince the new believers that were left behind in Thessalonica, that the departure and the continued absence of Paul and his team was due to the fact that they really didn't care about them or love them, which really was just another attempt to undermine the new believers' faith in the gospel by undermining their trust in those who had proclaimed it to them. One writer puts it this way, Paul's opponents might well have reasoned that if his professions of Christian love were shown to be false, then they could more easily argue that his gospel was false as well. And for context, just to remind you kind of the section that we're in right now, beginning in chapter 2, and we looked at those first 12 verses of chapter 2, I told you then that, as we were working through that material, that Paul's words indicate that Paul is defending himself at this point in the letter. Not only himself, but his team 
and more importantly, his gospel ministry. Defending himself against a smear campaign. Fake news, if you will. Very popular phrase nowadays, but a smear campaign that was led by not the uh, press, but the unbelieving Jews, initiated by them. So in his defense, Paul begins in chapter 2 to provide specific details concerning their gospel ministry in order to counter the various accusations that were, that were being made. And most of the details that he provides, as we were looking at that section, were apparently known by his readers. And we know that because several times he says, he'll, he'll state something and he'll say, as you know, for you remember. So he is calling to their attention the things that they should know that they might remember those things and then discount all the slander that was circulating concerning them in their ministry. Then in verses 13 through 16, these are all the verses leading up to this section now, Paul, he talked about the gospel ministry, he defends the gospel ministry, now he speaks about the Thessalonians' reception of that ministry and specifically the message. And you remember he says there that that he was thankful to God that they had accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is. What is it? The word of God, which he also points out was at work in them. And this may also have been a part of Paul's defense against the words of his opponents who may have been saying, that was not a divine message. That was just another message among many from man. Why are you putting so much stock in it, so much faith? Why are you giving your life to it? Paul reminds them, I'm thankful to God that you accepted it, not just as the word of men, but as the word of God, and reminds them that very word is doing a work, and you know it to be true. You see it in your own life. Next, In that section, 13 through 16, then Paul condemns the opposition or the unbelieving Jews who were working hard to keep the gospel from advancing or spreading. And then very naturally, Paul leads right into and addresses the absence of himself and his team, which was due to the fact initially of the work of these unbelieving Jews that he had just condemned. One writer puts it this way, just summing up this section. In addition to their earlier criticisms, that of the opponents, that Paul and his co-workers lacked integrity, were greedy, were deceitful flatterers, and were power-hungry, all of issues that Paul appears to be addressing in section verses 1 through 12. In addition to that, Paul Foes apparently told the Thessalonians that he and his co-workers really had no affection for them and have willfully and callously deserted them. Thus, Paul now concludes 1 Thessalonians 2 by telling his people why they had not been back and how they truly did care for them. So the gospel is at stake. Again, their confidence in the gospel. He needs to address these matters. He needs to inform them of these things so that they may not have any doubts or be tempted to turn away from the very gospel that they had believed 
from Paul and his team. So that is the section we're about to look at now. Let's read it. Beginning in verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. This section can be broken up into, this section we just read can be broken up into three parts. Okay, first, there is the missionaries' affection for the believers in Thessalonica and their desire to be with them. Second, we see what stood in the way of that desire being fulfilled. And third, we learn just how important and special the Thessalonian believers were to Paul and his team as it relates to the return and reward or rewards that Jesus Christ would bring for his faithful followers. So, Let's begin with looking at their affection for and desires for the Thessalonians, that of Paul and his team. He says in verse 17, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, for a short while is another way to translate that, for a little while, another translation, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. So remember, Paul, had, Paul and his team had, been, had to leave Thessalonica due to the efforts of the opposition. They had continued on with their ministry, but they left prematurely. They would have rather have stayed behind and continued the good work that they were doing there in helping these new converts become more grounded in their faith and grow in their understanding of Christianity. It is likely that Paul and his team were there for at least probably three months. It could be as long as six months. We don't know for sure. But he then had to leave. And he had concerns because he had left them earlier than he certainly wanted to leave. In other places that he went and did ministry, he Look to stay there longer, and that and that was his. Uh, that's what we see in the scriptures. But here he had to he had to take off. But what's basically going on is the opponents are are taking that opportunity of his absence and using it to slander him and suggest that <laughs> he left because he doesn't even care about you guys. And look, he hasn't even come back. He thinks nothing of you. The whole thing's a scam. That's basically what's going on, and Paul is addressing that. Listen. It was an involuntary separation. So let's take a closer look at the words that Paul uses here to communicate that. They're pretty strong. He wants to make sure there's no doubt in his readers' minds concerning these things. And then as we move through it, we'll make some application here, some takeaways as we think about how maybe what to think about or how to apply it to ourselves. So 
The Greek verb translated were torn away when he says, but since we were torn away, that's how it's translated in the ESV um, or taken away in the NASB or separated from you in another translation in the NET. Torn away is good though. Torn away is a good translation. That phrase occurs only here, uh, the Greek phrase there, only here in the New Testament, or verb. It literally means to be orphaned, to be orphaned or made an orphan. Uh, scholars, Bible scholars will point out that the word was used in a strict sense to, to refer, as you might think it would, to a child who lost his parents to death, one who becomes an orphan. But it was also used in a wider sense to refer to bereavement in general, or the loss of, or absence of, or separation from a friend or a loved one, and the feelings or pain that accompany such a loss or absence. So, a pretty heavy word. Not just like, yeah, we were taken away. It's more than that. So torn away is, is decent, uh, trying to get at the, what underlies that word, torn away, ripped away. One writer says, this graphic word combines the idea of separation with the mental anguish accompanying it. Okay. So again, he's trying to communicate this was an involuntary separation. We certainly would have stayed, we certainly wanted to stay with you. We certainly have also wanted to come back and be with you. It's, it's not on our part. And, and to show you that, we were ripped away from you. And we are grieving over that loss or that absence or that separation uh, over the last several months. Concerning that painful separation, though, being torn away from you, look at, how, look at what Paul says. In person, not in heart. It's just beautiful, the words that Paul uses to communicate uh, their affections and their desires uh, for the Thessalonians. Another writer, another translation puts it this way, instead of in person, not in heart, in presence, not in affection. Yeah, we were torn away in presence, but not in affection. That, didn't, that wasn't ripped away from us. We still have great affection for you. Another one Another translation that's more of a, less of a translation, more of an interpretation of the passage says, our hearts never left you. Our hearts never left you. Uh, one commentator says the idea is, Paul is saying basically, out of sight, but never out of mind. You know, we've said, I've said before, you know, and even giving an illustration, some sermon, the idea of there's a danger of out of sight, out of mind. But Paul's saying, you are indeed out of sight, but you are certainly not out of our minds, out of our hearts. We're thinking of you. We haven't stopped thinking of you. We care about you. We love you dearly. One writer said, even though they had known the Thessalonians, and this is, this is where it gets interesting, even though they had known the Thessalonians for only a few months, because like I told you, maybe max, maybe max of six months was probably likely three months or less that they were able to stay there preach the gospel, and instruct in the gospel, and minister to these, this new body of believers there in Thessalonica. So they, they had known them for a short time, okay? 
and had been torn away from them just for a short while now. Okay, so it hasn't been that long uh, since they've been away from them, probably another five, six months, but they struggled to endure the separation from them. It reminds, it reminds me a little bit, I uh, don't like being away from my wife, and so it doesn't take long uh, for her to be away for me to really start to feel a, a sense of loss and some pain, you know, like a couple hours usually. <laughs> I'm kidding. I mean, we're better than that, but not much better, not much better than that. So there's a great affection that we have for one another, a love for one another, and we, we desire to be together. And so it is, it is with the Christians there, with Paul and his team and those in Thessalonica. But, but listen, my affection, this is what's interesting, my affections for my wife have grown over the years, okay? Years. So in the beginning, I'm just trying to think. I don't know, maybe it would have been a little bit easier, I think, had not known her long had not had all that time spent together and connected in so many ways that, you know, she was absent for a while. I mean, babe, you know what I, huh, it doesn't mean I don't care. It just means uh, we could do it a little bit longer. We'd go a little bit farther maybe. But, but they, this, Paul and his team, they, they had spent not that long of a time with these folks in Thessalonica, and yet, and yet, there's this strong, strong tie, connection. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. In fact, one writer says, and again, because you know, we need to ask, why was it that they struggled so much to endure this separation when they had not been with them that long? And, and, and even so, think about it. It hasn't been that long since they've been separated. Not a long, long time. So why, why such emotional language and strong language? One writer points out, it is illuminating to remember that eight or nine months before these deeply affectionate words were written, not one of the three missionaries, Paul and his team, so far as we know, had any acquaintance with anyone in Thessalonica. He goes on to say, it was a demonstration then, these affectionate words and these ties, were a demonstration of the ties of love and brotherhood being forged and fixed by the gospel the missionaries were preaching. By the gospel the missionaries were preaching. Um, so I thought, I was just thinking about that, you know, how we could, how that might uh, a takeaway for us to consider you think about the church, the church, beloved, the people of God, the local assemblies, the church is, is made up of uh, people, you, different people. And by the way, think about this. Those that were coming in, you know, Paul, certainly a Jew, he's coming into a primarily Greek people, Greek culture, different cultures, uh, no connections, really. In fact, lots of things for them not to be connected around because they're different in how they approach things. But they come in, they preach the gospel. These believers hear it and receive it as what it is, the word of God. They become born again, and immediately they're brought together 
into a, the family of God. And there's this bond. And that is what the, and, and, and there's a, a unity and, and a uniting around and in the person of Jesus Christ. I think it's, it's just important for us never to forget those things that there is something, it is supernatural that when the gospel is preached and people believe, they can come from all kinds of different places and backgrounds, but they are immediately brought together and united together, and there is, by the work of the Spirit, a, an affection for and a, and a love, a real love, a biblical love for one another in a way that doesn't exist in other things. So, so for instance, I might join a bowling league, you know, and everyone on the bowling league, we're uniting around the fact that we all like bowling. But I'm not necessarily going to, you know, I'm not going to speak like this. Oh, my gosh, I, I, I missed you so much in between our sessions of bowling. I couldn't wait to be back with you again. I, I, I you know, I'm not going to speak. There's not necessarily, uh, there's not this type of bond that occurs, probably. I mean, there's high fives and there's, there's competition. I get all that, but... A caring for, a loving of, that is, that is a work of the Spirit of God that he does among his people and the people of God. Something so unique. I was talking to a brother, just, we were uh, just talking about, you know, just this affection even just had, that we have for one another, just as brothers and, and the Word of God and how it excites us. And I was telling him, you know, when I had gone down to Argentina, I met a pastor there, met the church there. Within, within an f- hour, immediately, a, you felt there was a real connection, a love. The only thing I can contribute uh, that to is the work of God and the Spirit of God that dwells inside of both of us and is excited by these things and is stimulated uh, when he sees the people of God coming together and, and loving one another. I would also say that it's, it's good to just think what brought these people together in this way. It was the gospel. Right? It was the gospel that brought them together. So local churches, gatherings of the people of God, what they should primarily, I would say what they should be, not even primarily, what they should be unified around, united in, and focused on, what should be bringing them together is the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the new birth, is the fact that they are part of a unique and new family that they have been born into, adopted into by the grace of God. That is what, that is what should bring us together and keep us together. That is the bond that we should look to strengthen and grow in and be focused on that one. That's the one that has this type of power that brings people together from all different, very different backgrounds. We have to be careful because in a church setting, we can have different uh, preferences, okay? Like you like bowling and you don't like bowling. You like baseball. I don't know. But we are not uniting around those things. At least we shouldn't be here as a body. We have different things we like, But what our focus is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, our salvation in him, his calling on us. That should remain 
our primary focus. Very important, very important. I've gone into uh, or seen or experienced myself gatherings of God's people where that moves from being the primary thing and something else takes its place. So, for instance, people are now in that church uniting around the fact that everyone homeschools in that church. In other words, to be a part of that church, you almost feel like you have to be a homeschooler. Okay? Um, There could be other things. How about this? Uh, To be a part of that church, uh, you have to be a Republican. I've seen that. Okay? That is not that is not what brought Paul and his team into this incredible, intimate, unbreakable, lasting, loving bond. It was not their politics. It was not their preferences. It was the person of Jesus Christ. It was the gospel. They were made one in him. And that was their focus. And that needs to remain our focus as well. I pray that we will have, or trust that we will have people of different persuasions and preferences and different things of that nature. But that's not the main emphasis here. That our emphasis is always the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is what ties us together forever. Republican, Democrat, homeschooler, public schooler, okay, yeah. Won't matter in the end, in eternity. And most of that stuff ends up bringing division. So no, nothing wrong with having a preference either. Nothing wrong with voting one way or another. But don't let that be the primary thing. In addition, there were ties here, as we see, these ties of love. And I don't want you to miss that. They were tied together not just as a social group. They were tied together in love, real love, biblical love, okay? Uh, One writer puts it this way, although the separation from them had only been for a short while, they nevertheless had a great longing, Paul and his team, to be with the Thessalonians. But why? Well, because of this bond in Christ, but more than that, because of their love for them. But don't, don't, we've got to be careful not to get confused, because they liked hanging out with them. Like, you know, these guys, it's really cool just to chill with them. So we really want to get back and chill with them. You know? I mean, they, you know, they like bowling and stuff. And we like, I mean, that's not what it was. It was this love that they had for them. So the writer says, a longing, this longing did not derive simply from the sentiment of friendship and socialization, but rather a loving commitment to their spiritual welfare. That's what was pulling them back together. That's what was giving them that longing and yearning and desire. It was, a, it was a love motivated, empowered by the Spirit of God that dwelled in them and dwelled now in the Thessalonians. 
And it was drawing them back together. Why? That they might be an encouragement to them, that they might instruct them, that they might help them along their way in the things of God. Why? Because they love them now, these born-again believers. And we've talked many times, we've said it many times, but you know what? It's a good definition of biblical love is is a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. And that's what Paul and his team had for them. And they for them, as we'll read later on, they too had this love for them. They sought their best, these new believers in Christ, united together in Christ, bound together in the gospel. And that's why they didn't want to be prematurely separated from them. They longed to go back. They knew there was more work to do. They cared about them. But all that care was not because, you know, they, it wasn't anything other than the gospel that brought all that together and made that care and love so strong. And so we've been, you know, think about it. We've been, we're starting to read this, do this study called Love or Die, right? And what does the church in Ephesus, what does Jesus rebuke them for? Many good things they did, but what does he rebuke them for? Huh? Right. The love that they had at first has begun to wane. It's, it's, it's not what it was. He tells them to go back. They had it, but they've begun to lose it. And so we as a church as well need to be careful. There are many things that contribute to the loss or depreciation of or diminishing of that love. Not only a love for God, it starts there, but all, and a love for our Lord, but a love for one another. But what we see here in the birth of this church and Paul and this, what had just recently occurred is this great love for each other and they for them and they're trying to communicate it to them. We have been kept from you, but not because we want to. And again, we don't want to be with you just because it's cool to hang with you. It's not like that. Listen, we come from different backgrounds. You're Greek. We're Jewish. Totally different. I mean, but we now have a, connection through the Spirit of God and the belief in the gospel in our Lord Jesus Christ that has brought us together and has given us great affection for you and desire to see you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have a yearning to do that very thing. And we need to maintain that, continue to defend that. And as we do the love or die study, we'll see there are, it's going to address that, things that we need to do to keep that from happening even in our own body where we begin to lose that. You know, where we begin to say, yeah, you know, it didn't bother me that I, that I wasn't with the people of God. You know, my local church, eh, I don't really care, whatever they're doing. That, that is a danger for all of us, that we can fall into that trap. We don't want to be there. We'd like to be right here and stay right here. A great yearning, a great passion for one another in the sense of wanting to see them grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, encouraging them, instructing them. So... Back to the passage. But since we were torn away from you, basically, for a short while, he says, though our hearts never left you, I just want you to know that, our hearts never left you, they've always been with you. He says in verse 17, last part of it, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. He couldn't, the words are just very strong, okay? The communication's very strong. He's trying to make it very clear. Don't listen to that nonsense and that slander. 
And the idea of face-to-face is not FaceTime. It's not that. And you go, well, of course it isn't. They didn't have that technology. But don't, don't think like that. It wasn't just a matter of them seeing their face. That idea of face-to-face was intimate communication. That's how we would understand it biblically. I want to be there to, 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 to speak into your life and for you to speak into mine. And, you know, a connection, not just, you know, seeing their face. It wasn't about that. Face-to-face, intimate communication. We're longing. We're trying. Literally, the passage reads this way. Literally, the word order is like this. Very earnestly, we endeavored your face to see with much desire. It sounds like a, a couple in love, you know? Kind of. It does sound that way, doesn't it? These are good words. You should borrow these and write them down for a Valentine's card or something. Sweetie, I dropped you off at work today, but very earnestly I endeavored to see your face with much desire. Um, You get the idea, but that is, there is a a, a passion and an affection for them. Earnestly, seriously, and intensely. That's the idea of the word earnestly. Endeavor, that's to strive, to achieve, or reach. One writer says, the phrase, we endeavor very, very earnestly, it conveys a depth of feeling amounting to zeal. A zeal heightened by separation. You know, absence makes the heart grow fonder kind of idea. There was a pain in their hearts for their brothers and sisters in Christ being separated from them. One writer says that phrase is loaded with intensity and emotion. It was as though the apostle were short of breath with eagerness and anticipation as he expressed his desire to see the Thessalonians. Beautiful. It's beautiful. It's it's a work of the Spirit in the people of God that does this. A work that can be diminished with, through sin and distraction and everything else that gets in the way of this in our lives. One translation puts it this way. Dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a little while, though our hearts never left you, we tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. Okay? I mean, you can see he's making it clear that, you know, this separation was not because we wanted to be separated from you. Not initially, and not as it has continued. In fact, the word that he uses, that's translated intense longing, and as I just showed you, or great desire in the ESV, it's interesting. It's a, it's a general expression uh, for any kind, the Greek word there, for any kind of dominant passion or compelling, controlling desire. And by the way, it was most often used in secular Greek uh, to denote uh, passion of a physical kind. Okay? Choosing my words carefully. Here, it indicates how dominant and compelling the desire was to see the collective face of the Thessalonians again soon. You know what I'm talking about? That kind of passion and desire? It's the same in the sense of their longing for them. Not in a physical way, but spiritually, they long for them. Affectionately, they long for them. Strong desire. Where does that come from? The Spirit of God. Working in them, bringing them together. Now, the second part of the passage, 
or the second part we're going to look at, that was their desire, their affections. What stood in the way of that strong desire being fulfilled? What stood in the way? Satan, yeah, see, you're already ahead. You already know where we're going. Good. So we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, verse 18, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. I mean, there's kind of a repetition here. I mean, listen, I just said we tried. We, we wanted to come. Don't think for a moment we haven't wanted to be with you. We, we certainly have. We tried. And Paul says, he says, we in reference to him and his team, but then he adds the fact that he, as he's, that he personally wanted to come again and again or tried again and again. And the, the idea of again and again there, it just means more than once, probably several times. We don't know exactly or specifically what Paul is talking about, but we can just take it as it is. I desire to be with you and... and the one commentator points out, it's not like Paul saying, you know, I desire it more, or I've really tried harder. It's not that. He's not applying a lesser desire on the part of his companions, but he's emphasizing here his own. Why? Well, he probably did that because he would have been the chief object of attack. He was leading the team. So the attacks probably came at him directly. You know that guy, that Paul? He didn't even, he doesn't care about you guys. He didn't even want to bring his team back. So Paul says, yeah, we do want to, I, again and again, I've tried. I desired it, longed for it, to be with you again, to see you face to face, to have intimate communication, to continue the work that we started, the good work of the gospel, to have fellowship with you once again. But Satan hindered us. The word translated hindered, it literally means to cut into, to cut into. It was used as a military term in later Greek to picture an enemy force cutting up or destroying a road so as to make it impassable. Uh, It was also used to denote any hindrance in general, And it conveys the thought of obstacles preventing the accomplishment of an intended movement. That's the word he uses. Now, there's not enough information. We don't have it to know exactly what hindrances Paul had in mind when he said that. He just says it. Satan hindered us. Satan cut in. He he looked to make it impossible for us to, to get back to you. But in doing that, what Paul did communicate clearly is that it was not a lack of desire or a lack of love that prevented his return in Thessalonica. Rather, rather, it was supernatural opposition that kept Paul and his team away. And I think that would be important. It, you know, it wasn't just because, you know, Netflix just released a whole new round of shows and we were binging, man, and we just couldn't find our way back to you or... You know, it was just a little cold outside, and we don't do real well with the cold, so we just couldn't make our way back to you. It was none of that. We wanted to. We desired to. It wasn't on us. But Satan hindered us. 
You know, it reminds me of that, uh, I love this song by Marvin Gaye and, and Tammy Terrell, I think is how you say her name. Ain't No Mountain High Enough, you know that song? Do you know it? Because baby, come on, sing it with me because I can't sing. Because baby, there ain't no mountain high enough, right? Ain't no valley low enough. Ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you, babe. Right? Don't applause for that. That's terrible. All right. So you got the idea of the song, right? Nothing. Nothing ain't going to get in the way of me getting to you. Yeah. That's true, except when we're talking about supernatural opposition, right? Satan can and does look to hinder the work of the gospel, and so he did here. It wasn't, listen, if it was just a mountain, if it was just a wide river, we would have got to you. <laughs> Marvin Gaye didn't include that idea, you know, in his song. Maybe all those things won't stop me, but if Satan gets involved, who knows? I don't know. Powerful force, right? So some takeaway from this, just a couple of things real quick. One writer, a pastor, points out, I think it's important, it's worth noting. Some Bible teachers, he says, tell Christians that they have, the, have authority over the devil and they can command him around as if he were their trained poodle. And you see that on some evangelistic television. That is not what's communicated in the New Testament letters. When Paul and writes about our great adversary, the devil, he doesn't communicate that way. If that was the case, then the Thessalonians could have said, Paul, you're an apostle. Why didn't you just rebuke him in the name of Jesus? Why didn't you just have more faith, right? Then you could have been with us. I mean, why even offer that up as an example? Don't you have power to command him and he'll bow at your word as long as you have faith to say it and speak it forth? No. Satan is a great opponent, a powerful opponent. And we as individuals can't just you know, tell him what to do or call him to this or call him that. The Lord can and does and will, Okay. But he is a very dangerous, dangerous adversary and powerful. And of course, we know that ultimately God is sovereign. Nothing happens outside of his control. But according to God's sovereign will and purposes, he gives Satan some free reign, in a sense, a leash to do his things that he does according to God's purposes. We don't understand it all, but Satan does work. And listen, in this particular situation, he hindered Paul and his team from returning while we believe those who oppose the gospel, children of the devil, their father's the devil, that's how Jesus referred to them. Those who oppose the gospel work to slander Paul and his team, and we believe, based on these words here, put it into the minds of those believers that they didn't really care about you. They don't love you. They're just a bunch of scam artists. Look, as soon as things got difficult, they were out of here, and they haven't been back. So when things got tough, they bailed. They were looking to get what they could out of you, but we sent them out. We drove them out, and look, they're out of here. They don't care about you. No postcards. They haven't emailed you. Nothing. Right? So, but who's working on the other end to hinder Paul from getting back? And who's working in those Jewish opponents? Satan. 
So what I take from this is one of Satan's strategies, because he has many. You know, obviously, the, the one right up the front we would see is he looks to keep Christians from each other that can help each other. He looks to do that, and he works in many different ways to keep us not from being brought together, but to keep us separated or apart, and certainly to keep those that can be a help to, eat, to the body of Christ away from them. Okay, that's obvious, but here's something else. He works to get Christians to think evil of each other. To assume the worst of your brother and sister. Because that's really what's happened here. That's how he works. So it may not look exactly like this, but that goal of his shows up in many different ways. Where we begin to assume the worst of another brother and sister in here. Even as something as simple, beloved, as, I don't know, like I've said before, we don't, maybe that brother or sister wasn't affectionate to you or wasn't very caring that day. So we assume, well, they must have a real problem or they must be a hater of me or they must not love me. And it may have nothing to do with that at all. It could be a, a a wide range of many other things that cause them to not pay attention to you and to love you, right? But the enemy works, and he takes those opportunities, and I'm telling you, he does it in marriage, he does it in our relationships, and he does it in the church. So Paul says, you know this for certain, we love you. We have have desired to get back to you, but... The enemy of our souls has worked to hinder us, to prevent us from fulfilling our desires to see you face to face. Don't believe those lies for a second. Don't believe those lies, beloved. Don't assume the worst about each other. Don't do it. That's a strategy of the enemy. Now, if they prove you otherwise, you know, if they prove to be wretched people, well, then there's forgiveness, right? But too quickly we jump to conclusions. And I would say that's a a work of the devil. So, where am I? Because I'm out of time again. Uh, Okay. So we're at the last part. It's easy. It's quick. First, there was the missionaries' affections for the believers in Thessalonica and their desire to be with them. Second, we saw what stood in the way of that desire being fulfilled. And now, finally, in these last two verses, we see just how important the Thessalonian believers were to Paul and his team as it relates to the return and rewards of Jesus Christ. Verse 19, for what or who, you could translate it either way, is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? It's a rhetorical question. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now, beloved, all of a sudden he turns now, as we'll see in every, at the end of every chapter as it's uh, structured in the book of Thessalonians, at the end of every chapter, there's a reference to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that is the focus of Paul, you know? Uh, one writer says he always lived and taught others to live in light of Jesus Christ's return. How about you? How about you? Are you always living in light of and teaching others to live in light of the Lord's return? Paul did. 
everywhere. You see it here. Now he's connecting it back to this. These believers in Thessalonica, he's going to connect it back to the Lord's return to demonstrate just how much or just how important they really are to him. Watch. For, for, as it begins with in verse 19, indicates that what followed served as the basis of Paul's desire to see the Thessalonians again. So basically, it is, it's, it's of course, basically Paul's saying, to paraphrase, of course it's our great desire to see you again, for you are our eternal glory and joy. Are you kidding? And again, he's not rebuking them, but he's just in response to this slander that's been circulating. God, are you kidding? No way. You're so important to us, especially as we consider these things from an eternal perspective. You are not people then we sought to take advantage of or tried to selfishly exploit and then cast aside after things got too difficult for us to stick around. Rather, rather, you are incredibly important to us. You are part of our eternal reward. We treasure you and will forever as we long and look forward to the return of our Lord and the reward he will bring You're part of that reward. Are you kidding? One writer says this. In effect, he asked Paul, what would be the greatest blessing we could possibly receive at the judgment seat of Christ? When Christ hands out and, you know, hands out his rewards to his uh, followers, believers, what what is the greatest blessing we could possibly receive at the judgment seat of Christ? They were... (laughs) They were, the Thessalonians, they were everything that was worth anything to Paul and his co-workers. This isn't the first time Paul spoke this way. He spoke this way also to those in Philippi, to the church in Philippi. In Philippians 4.1, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. That phrase, before our Lord Jesus at his coming, One writer says it looks forward to that happy day when all that Paul and his co-workers hope and feel concerning the Thessalonian converts will be realized as they stand before the Lord Jesus for his final review and reward. Paul and his co-workers did all of their work in view of that future day. How often does that future day come into your mind, beloved? How often is it that what is motivating you? from day to day and week to week. It motivated Paul. He was obsessed with it, rightfully so. In these words, hope, they're his hope. Who is the object of their hope? Of eternal reward and blessing on that day that the Lord returns? The Thessalonian believers were. Who was their source of their joy or eternal happiness and satisfaction when the Lord would return? The Thessalonian believers were. Who is their crown of boasting? Well, crown of boasting, that, the crown that he, that he refers to here, it was a, a wreath given in um, Olympic games or competitions, and it, it signified victory. One writer says, the word for crown is not the imperial crown, it's not like the king's crown, but rather the laurel wreath or garland with which the victors in the Greek games were crowned. His beloved converts are dear to him as evidence that he's not running his race in vain. Here the reference is to the missionary's feeling of success and triumph in that day and its exultant expression before God. 
They're not boasting in their own efforts or boasting in their might, but boasting in the success that they've seen achieved through God and his work who used them to achieve those things. They are their crown of boasting. We will boast in you. Finally, Paul concludes, for you are our glory and joy. When this life is over and we stand in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming, you, Thessalonians, will be the source of our glory and joy. You mean that much to us. Now this note, and then we can close with this. One writer says, here's your takeaway. A great part of heaven's bliss for the redeemed will be the joyful presence of those whom they have been used to reach. A great part. How are you being used to reach others with the gospel? Are you being used? Are you allowing yourself to be used? How are your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are they... Are they just superficial or are they relationships designed to benefit one another for the sake of the gospel? To help them grow up in the Lord, to become more mature. This is why we desire with all of our hearts to be a disciple-making, disciple-multiplying church. We desire with all of our hearts because that's why we're here. That's That's what we're looking forward to. And that will be our great reward as we look around and see those who have through our efforts and then through other efforts multiplied, who have come to Christ and grown in Christ and matured in Christ, and then they reproduce and made disciples, that will be part of our great reward and blessing and joy. Everything else is going to pass away. But all those that we have invested into in this way will be with us forever, and we can rejoice in God and Christ And what he has done in using us, that will be part of our great reward. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Paul's treasure was in heaven. He was longing and looking for that. He had affection for them. Of course you're so important to us. Are you kidding? You are glory and joy now and forevermore. We could not care more for you because we have an eternal perspective. Our mind is focused on the gospel. We live for the Lord and long for his return and his reward. Is that you? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank we do thank you for your word. What a, wow. We're grateful for it and how we need it. We continually need your word spoken into our lives because we have so much other stuff coming in that, is, that runs counter to it. Father, wash us clean. May your spirit take your word and convict us in the areas that we need conviction and, and empower us to, to walk in obedience to it, to be transformed, to make necessary changes, and not just once, but over and over and over again, to be a repentant people. When we see that we're off course, to correct course, not in our own strength, not in our own power, but in the power of the one who dwells inside of us, almighty God, Holy Spirit.
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for making us part of the family of God. Thank you for the blessing of this, the word that we got to uh, read and study and look at today. And Father, I just pray, may you do your work in us. We need it. We long for it. Oh, how we love you. In Christ's name, amen.